For context, the episode you're about to listen to was recorded in December of 2019. Welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 268. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have a returning guest, Leland Holcomb. Pleasure to be here, Kip. I'm excited. As am I, my fellow American, to discuss an article entitled, Citizens Need to Know Numbers. And this was published on Aeon, an old favorite of mine, on September 16th, 2019. It was written by David Spiegelhalter and edited by Sam Hasselby. And Spiegelhalter gets into his concern and belief, really, that citizens need to have a better understanding of statistics, even basic statistical analysis, because of the ease with which we can all be misled by statistical information. And I think the word information is key here because there are various facts outlined in this article, and I'm sure in others you could find across the internet and various research databases, both on and offline, that could really mislead you. Leland, you and I are about to record a podcast for 40 plus minutes, though the audience will listen to an edited down version. And because it's one of the first conversations I've had today, it's a statistical anomaly and will raise the average conversational length of my day today. So if someone were to ask for that very specific statistic, they'd be misled by the truth. Similarly, if you've been told by a fortune teller, that you'll meet the love of your life while wearing red shoes, and you go on to wear red shoes every day, you're not allowing chance to happen. You're literally preventing any alternative from taking place. That's not statistical significance, but these and other related issues are some of people's natural biases in trying to process information. We're not very good at it, I would argue, and I suspect that Spiegelhalter would have comments to make upon that. His main thesis, which you and I both found well-worded, is that, quote, in an age in which data plays an ever more prominent role in society, the ability to spot ways in which numbers can be misused and to be able to deconstruct claims based on statistics should be a standard civic skill. There's a lot in there to unpack, but I'm most eager to hear your thoughts right now. It's a really fascinating article for a lot of reasons. I think first and foremost, this issue of fake news or statistics being around us that are being weaponized or used in ways that are misleading has been a very prevalent part of our national discourse. But at the same time, it's often just used as a way of attacking another side or somebody else and saying this is intentionally being used to mislead. And I think while that does happen quite often, this article does an excellent job of showing us just how difficult the problem of really understanding what's behind statistics is. And part of that has to do with the fact that when you're reviewing statistics, to go back to your example of the amount of time you spend in conversation or the length of time each conversation was, when you look at that problem, it's really going to be up to the person to sleuth out what aspect they want to know. So when they know how long your average conversation is, they can use that to then go, wow, Kip had an extremely long conversation today. So if they're really trying to figure out what the longest conversation you had was, you can work back from there. And it seems like, wow, it's going to be a massively long conversation. Conversely, if they want to say Kip is having a lot of very long conversations, they can also use that same data to say that even though, to your point, if you looked deeper, it wouldn't suggest the same. 
And in this article, they use the example of bacon causing colorectal cancer and the statistics that they had around that. And the second was a murderous British general practitioner named Harold Shipman. And these are important and interesting examples because they show both how difficult it is to actually find and understand these statistics on any level, and second, both how easy it is to maliciously and without malicious intent demonstrate statistics in specific ways. So a 19% increase among bacon eaters in colorectal cancer becomes killer bacon. And that's what I think this article is all about. What I find really fascinating is also to bring it back to what the thesis statement was itself. They then take that jump to say, because this is a reality, because it's very hard to properly and adequately assess and understand statistics when they're presented to you, particularly when they're presented in the form of a conclusion drawn from statistics that you haven't had the chance to analyze, it becomes ever more important that we have it as a civic skill that every person learn basic statistics, and in some cases, actually rather in-depth statistics, to really understand what's being put before them. This is a really, really important problem, but I think it's also excellent because Spiegelhalter does a good job of showing just how difficult this is as a problem to execute on, even when you have great intent and full-time, and full data as well. Prior to your comments just now, though I also read the article, I don't think I had categorized the types of stats that Spiegelhalter brings up. And as an author, I'm sure he wants to write the most compelling piece possible. But a lot of the statistics he references, especially the two you bring up, all share a thread of fear. The idea that a general practitioner could be killing patients, or that a popular meat snack could be causing a very painful and destructive disease, are both really terrifying ideas. I think especially with a doctor, people we want to trust in our society, it's terrifying to think that we might not be safe. And I think stats of fear are really interesting because they tell a certain story. If I told people in my life that 100% of my friends leave, well, objectively, after hanging out, everyone parts ways, even people who are profoundly close to one another. And in this case, the definition of terms is really crucial. I think about a really common statistic that about 50% of marriages end in divorce, and how many interpretations you can make from that. We so rarely say 50% of marriages last. We instead fixate on those that end. We also don't talk about marriages that don't end, but may not be happy. They may be loveless, sexless, without fun, joy, or any sort of measurable fulfillment. And it's not my place to tell those couples to get divorced, but stats can be really misleading, or at least at the highest level, very reductive in the textures and gradients that they blur out. I would also say that the marriages ending in divorce might be some of the most authentic and real. When you realize you're no longer well-suited for someone, in my personal belief, I think a divorce makes sense. Now, obviously, these personal interpretations don't always work with statistical data, but my point being, as Spiegelhalter articulates far better, that we should question statistics we are given, and at the very least, dig a little deeper. He opens the article, as is also his headline image, referencing the 2016 Brexit campaign in the UK, and notes that plastered on a bus, the Leave campaign featured, We send EU £350 million each week. Let's fund our NHS, which stands for National Health Service, instead. Now, in 2016, Leave won Brexit by a narrow margin of 52 to 48 percent. Again, thinking about marriage, I would say the loss of the Remain campaign was not a landslide in my interpretation, but a statistician might say, Kip, that four-point difference is actually quite significant. 
And to me, that's a crucial thing to say. As a host and conversationalist right here, I don't have sufficient expertise, and all of what you, Leland, and listeners are hearing are my interpretations, which are just that. Spiegelhalter goes on to say, that weekly value of £350 million per week was calculated by Britain's £18.6 million given to the EU, £5.6 billion of which were rebated, and another £4 billion comes back from the EU in support for sectors such as public sector science and agricultural funding. And another way of looking at this stats, which I really love, is that there are roughly 66 million people in the UK, and 350 million pounds divided evenly amongst them comes out to less than $1, or the cost of a small packet of potato chips. So the bus could have said, as Spiegelhalter notes, quote, we each send the EU the price of a packet of crisps each day, end quote. And in that case, would the Leave campaign A, have been successful, and B, have been compelling in that statistic? I would argue no, because we as people, I'm definitely guilty of this, are taken by grandiose claims, tall tales, and colossal statements. We're not very excited by the mundane because our brains filter it out as familiar background noise that we needn't concern ourselves with. Thanks for bringing that up, because I think this is where it gets particularly interesting. Because I think the distinction that you bring up here is how it's not necessarily the statistics that are misleading us. It's the inference-driven approach to the statistics, where you will always have the ability as a statistician or a person to present numbers in different ways. And the way that you present the numbers can change the inference. Now, on top of that, we're very story-driven people as a society. So the headlines that we read these articles in are often going to mirror that need to have a story or an inference lead the way. So they're not going to list the statistic in the headline. What they're going to do is say, we send too much money to the EU or something. The headline itself often includes an inference within it. And you couple that with the fact that most people don't have the time to even read the article at all. And so what you then end up having is the inferences that are being drawn by statistics making an inferential headline, and then that headline being read, and then inferences being drawn from that headline. And you couple that with the fact that we have an increasing amount of bots and online activity, which scours the internet for headlines, scours the internet for articles, takes those articles, repurposes them, and creates new ones. So all of a sudden, then you have an amplification of the headline itself, which again was an inference on an inference. You really lose the ability to actually determine what the underlying statistics were trying to say. Couple that with the fact that even if they were trying to understand what was really behind all the statistics, it's really difficult to have seen that. It's really difficult to have looked correctly at that. The article then brings it back to the fact that we need to impress upon people and society that statistical literacy is incredibly important. And what that means is when you hear a statistic or if you see a headline like that, don't believe it. Because what I'd like to see personally is us not clicking on those headlines as much, even though it's in our human nature to click on them. And I know that's really difficult. And what I'd like to see instead is just a very simple change if it was nothing more than headlines alone. If there was a requirement that headlines had to just include underlying statistics in them or couldn't draw inferences at all, that alone, I think, would have a major impact. Because I think when people read articles or read newspapers now, especially because it's online and it's quick and it's usually in the form of an email newsletter or they're scrolling through their Facebook news feed, it's always delivered in a very emotional and specific context that often takes away from the underlying information and points that they should be assessing themselves in making these decisions. 
What I really appreciate about your point that many people will not read the article, and neither you nor I have the stats on that information, I, for one, tend to associate people who read with those who are intelligent. And the extrapolations you make lead my mind to a scary, but I hope philosophically important place. If we take as a premise that most people don't have the time to read the article, but that they will read the headlines, often these headlines are attention-grabbing, compelling, and interesting enough that they may tell their friends and acquaintances. And if we assume that that happens, maybe these friends and acquaintances, because of the design of headlines, take those headlines and those quote-unquote facts and pass them on, to the point that, like a rumor, we can't even trace the origin. And furthermore, in a world like ours, statistically misinformed communities are formed around people who share common beliefs over stats that haven't been checked and weren't even correct. They were, to your point, inferences made in eye-catching headlines. And were we all more statistically literate, perhaps some of those communities would be, in a healthy way, broken up or at least aided by clearer knowledge and a wiser approach. Data is everywhere now, and no matter who you are, you can't avoid the impact of data and statistics on what you see and hear every day of your life. And that means that everybody needs to have a basic understanding of how to digest the data that's being presented to them so they have the best chance of avoiding being misled or overcharged by the data presented. This is not something that's isolated to math people anymore. It's not something that's a field in isolation anymore. Its impact is found everywhere because with increasing amounts of data, statistics has become increasingly relevant to every aspect of our lives in an entirely positive way because we're learning more things than ever before about a lot of things. But it also comes with this added need to take the time to really assess what's behind things. For me, that means I'm trying to spend more time with underlying data and less time with more dramatic tellings of data. And for others, that might mean different things. But I do think it's very important that we take the time to kind of go over what this article presents. Now, we can use this article as an opportunity to begin that learning. I certainly did. I actually spend a lot of time looking at data in my job and in my life in general. And there was a lot I learned from this article nonetheless. Specifically, I want to draw attention to two aspects that are presented in this article as potential areas of failure when analyzing statistics because of the action of analyzing the statistics themselves. And this is really, really important because it shows you how even non-maliciously data could fall into these places. And I think it'll also help inform how people look at data and analyze the data in real time. So the first was the law of the iterated logarithm which shows that, quote, if we carry out such repeated testing, even if the null hypothesis is true, then we are certain to eventually reject that null at any significance level we choose. Essentially, what that means within the context of the article is, if you take any single premise and you test it enough, you're going to reinforce that premise. So if you go in with a bias and you look enough times for that bias to be reinforced, it will be, and it will be statistically reinforced because you can find a way to do that. Now, on the flip side of that, the article also mentions the development of sequential probability ratio testing, which is, quote, a statistic that monitors accumulating evidence about deviations. Essentially, what he was trying to do in bringing this forward is show that even the factor of iterated logarithm can be analyzed. 
So again, we can use tools of statistics to continuously monitor even the failure in those statistics. What I took away from that was we should all try to disprove our own biases with the same data that we're looking at to prove it. That does not mean we can't come to conclusions and inferences ourselves. That means that we should, in fact. But we should be spending our time and effort to try to understand what the data is telling us and what the data might be telling us that might disprove what we believe. Growing up, I did speech and debate in high school. And one of the things I loved about that practice was continuously they forced us to debate and argue topics that we either didn't have any skin in the game of or didn't agree with at all. And one of my favorites that I continuously bring up is we had to debate the resolution, blue is the best color. I love that topic because essentially you're able to pull things from anywhere. You can say the sky is blue, there's more sky than anything else when I look around and therefore blue is the best color because it's everywhere. Or we see water as blue and we can't live without water, so blue is the best color. I mean, you can always find something to enforce it. But you had to also be thinking about A, why you're even saying these things and why they're important, and B, the aspects of what the other person is going to be arguing that might come into play and have relevance there. And that's an aspect of law and communication more generally. You always have to be thinking about what the other side thinks and take that very, very seriously. Because I think more of us should spend more of our time trying to work with data and work with what we're reading and hearing to see if we really believe the things that we believe. What I really love about what you share there is your reference to our own statistical data. You mentioned looking at data in your job and in your life, and I'd like to echo that with an experience you've had of my life recently. As you've been kind enough to visit me and record, I've told you, as with other friends, of a person who, at the time of this recording, I have really strong romantic feelings for. And my interest in telling that story to people has been to gather their responses and general impressions. And it's so interesting to note that I'm aware I recall the positive experiences with this person that, to me, suggest the possibility of mutual feelings. Certainly, I can recall a handful of examples that push me off that path, but I'm aware that I'm now so invested in hoping a mutuality exists, I may not be able to recall the statistically significant examples of this person indicating a preference for friendship. And I sympathize with you and others who've had to hear that characteristically long story because I'm sure it's laden with examples of me choosing to interpret certain data and also not making an objective record of what happened. These are my recollections of my experiences with this person. And I think in many ways we behave that way when it comes to more quantitative statistics. And with your mention of debate, a part of me would love the hypothetical experience of debating with someone, potentially another version of myself, to disprove that this person has any feelings whatsoever. Because that experience of getting at the truth, which is what really resonated with me about this article, I find really compelling and powerful. And because we all have statistical data, maybe one route through the 21st century that we aren't considering in our dystopian fears of data practices and how our data is sold is that we as a culture become more excited about our personal data and think about the stories it can help us tell or the clarity it can give us. Subsequently, maybe we become more protective or territorial of our own personal data and in fact resist or entirely rebel against the practices of companies that want to sell that data. I think presently many of us are complacent with it because we don't see the value in it. But maybe articles like Spiegelhalter's or conversations like ours, Leland, could illuminate for people the really powerful, tantalizing, exciting, 
and at the same time confusing world of statistical information, one I wouldn't dissuade anyone from exploring, but one that I would encourage all of us to explore with caution, analysis, and the proper intellectual tools to not be thrown off the path of truth. Thanks again for sharing your personal romantic quandary, because I think while it's obviously very, very important in your life and really interesting to hear as well, I think it can also be generally extrapolated to be an important example of why it's important to actually think about why the things that we've seen have led us to believe and think and feel the things that we do. So in your case, it might be really helpful when you're talking through the relationship thus far, what things have led you to maybe have the feelings that you do. And at the same time, think about how things that they might have done and said have shown how they felt or impacted your feelings as well. And I think that can be taken generally as well. So if we spend more time talking with each other about why the things that we're seeing are changing our viewpoints or making us think the things that we do, perhaps then we might be able to more openly discuss the things that we differ on or have different opinions on. Because if you boil it down to the statistics, maybe you can just debate the stats and maybe it's a little bit easier to talk about difficult things if you boil it down to that and say, here's why I think this person might have feelings for me. And do you think like that sounds like they do? That's a very general example on purpose, but I think that can be taken really to any avenue. And you can have those discussions with people openly about, here's what I'm seeing in the world. Is this what you're seeing? Is this a good way of interpreting what I'm seeing in the world? And am I making proper inferences? And if so, then we can act together. And I think even if, and perhaps especially if it leads to us agreeing that that is an important thing, then we're both stronger and better for it. And my friend, as I feel strengthened by our discussion of this article and the ideas put forth, I'd really love to know what you'd like our audience to consider after listening to our conversation. As I think we discussed in depth on this podcast, I think that we all should prioritize digging deeper into why we think and feel what we feel and what we think, and what aspects of our lives or information might be leading us to have those thoughts and beliefs. Because either it's going to more strongly reinforce that opinion for you, which will be good for you, and will make you more resolute in your feeling of that opinion, or it will lead you to think something else. And either of those things I think are really important and strong practices as we are bombarded continuously with data and statistics and continuously with inferences drawn from that data and statistics from people we don't know, from sources we don't know, and from places and things we don't understand. Because it's precisely the things that you understand the least that you need to look to other people for. And if you don't trust other people because you can't understand how they're drawing their inferences, then you're going to be left feeling powerless to understand the world around you and you'll be made more susceptible to being misled whether intentionally or not. And one of the reasons I think this is an important article is because it simultaneously lays that out, but also shows you just how difficult this can be, while also teaching you a few of these tricks that you can incorporate into your review of statistics and your thoughts about data and statistical literacy as you analyze all the data and statistics that we come across in our everyday lives. To that point, I don't know that I could ever get anyone excited about statistics I certainly notice myself glazing over when a conversation lingers on the topic for too long. But towards the latter half of this conversation, I've been really excited by the thought of personal statistics. And so I'd encourage listeners to think about stats in their own lives. Take a day and notice how many statistics you are shown to the bombardment that you reference, Leland. I'd also encourage listeners, as I'm somewhat excited to do now, to track some random statistics in their own lives. I know many of us count calories, but what about the average percentage of a movie that you watch on an online streaming service? 
or the typical length of a conversation, perhaps even the average amount of time in your friendships that passes between each hangout. I think these stats are really interesting and can paint various stories depending on your interpretation. But as Spiegelhalter notes, part of this is less about quantitative reasoning and more about practicing, actually understanding that you can easily be misled and it's a muscle to strengthen. Towards the end of the article, one of his thoughts I'd like to share with the listeners is that, quote, the important lesson is that while statistical systems can detect outlying outcomes, they cannot offer reasons why these might have occurred, end quote. And I think that's where our precious storytelling humanity comes in. Yes, we can tell the wrong story, but I don't think the argument here is to stop reading, telling, or sharing stories, but to move ever closer towards more truthful ones. But Leland, for your time today and willingness to help unpack this article, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Same here. Always great to take the time. Well, statistically, it would be wonderful if we could confirm the veracity of what you've just said, but you have my trust. And of course, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. As much as I care about you, Leland, I don't know that we're statistically significant, and there are billions of other voices I'd love in this conversation. So if you listening have any thoughts, opinions, or feelings of any kind, please reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.